Mosaic. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. When Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lizzie. Hey, let's pray. Father, this is your word, and what a beautiful string of passages uh, this is here. Lord, would you, would you take this word and may it become life? Uh, we know that the word has life in it, and just by reading it, that it works upon our souls. And so, Lord, may your, your word come to light, and may all we do is just look at it from different angles this morning, and may it work upon me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a skit from an old TV show that goes a little something like this. Dr. Schweitzer? Uh, uh, yes, uh, come in. I'm just washing my hands. Uh, I, I'm Catherine Bigmans. Uh, Janet Carlisle referred me. Uh, oh, oh, yes, you, you dream about being buried alive in a box. Uh, yeah, yes, that, that's me. Uh, should, I, should I lay down? Uh, no, we don't do that anymore. Um, just have a seat, and l- let me tell you about our billing. Uh, I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and then absolutely nothing after that. How does that sound? Well, uh, that sounds great. Almost too good to be true, as a matter of fact. Uh, well, I, I can guarantee you, it, you that our session won't last the full five minutes. Uh, now, why don't do any insurance billing so you would just have to pay in cash or uh, by check? Go. <laughs> uh, tell me about the problem you, want, you wish to address. Uh, Okay, well, I I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. And I I just start thinking about being buried alive, and and I begin to panic. Has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box before? No, 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 but truly thinking about it makes my life horrible. I mean, I I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house or, or anything boxy. All right, well... All right, let's go, Catherine. Uh, I'm going to say these two words right now, and I want you to listen to them very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Uh, Should I write them down? If it makes you feel comfortable. It's just two words. Uh, We find most people can remember them. Okay? You, you, You ready? Yes? Okay, here they are. Stop it! I'm sorry. Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Wait, what are you trying to say? You know, I said stop it. It's not Yiddish, it's English. Stop it. So, so I should just stop it. Yep, there you go. I mean, if, do you want to go through your whole life being scared of being buried alive in a box? I mean, that sounds frightening. Uh, it, it is. <laughs> then stop it. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good girl. Well, it's only been three minutes, so that will be $3. Uh, the, the sketch goes on. I won't do the whole sketch, but you should definitely go look at Bob Newhart, Mad TV, Stop It. Uh, and it I, but I think that sketch defines how many of us think about change. Like on one hand, we think change is possible, that we should just stop it. Or maybe you've heard someone say to you, just do better. Just be better. 
Like, make better decisions. Or maybe today you're thinking of change in, a, in another way and, and how you've heard it said, or maybe you've said it this way before, you just say something like this, I am who I am. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Maybe you've heard, you know, you can't teach a, an old dog new tricks or that, that's just my family, that's just who we are. Or maybe you've heard someone say to you, you won't ever change and then you start to believe it. Well, let me just start today by preaching. If the grave is empty, then nothing is impossible with God. But how can we change? We're not talking about circumstantial change. We're not talking about that, like, you know, like whether I can help you start to like vegetables. Uh, I can't help you. But what we're talking about today is victory over sin and life change. And as we enter 2021, as many of us are, are praising God that 2020 is over, hallelujah, there is so much to lament about last year, it, as if all of a sudden things are different this year. But, but as we enter this new year, Jada eloquently said it earlier this week, let's just not leave that pain in 2020 as if it never happened. Let's take that pain with us so that we can, we can be reminded of its horrors and it can fuel the fight as we go. I think that's a good word, Jada. But as we look to 2021 with, with so much hope and so much optimism that things will be better that we will change, that our society will change, that even I as an individual can change what makes you think anything will be different. I saw one person say their New Year's resolution was to lose 10 pounds in 2020. And a week ago they said, and I still got 21 pounds to go. Takes a second. Doesn't that seem to embody like how we think about resolutions and change? Like we just bounce back and forth between this naive optimism, everything's possible, to this hopeless despondency, nothing will ever change. I mean, does that resonate with anyone here? Do you, do you bounce back and forth between these two? Well, today we're going to look at this beautiful text of Colossians 3, which is a passage that the church has traditionally used throughout the centuries after Christmas to ask if Christmas is true, if God himself visited us, if all that happened, not just in our hearts, but that he was embodied, he was particular, he was concrete, you could, you could feel him, like the, it matters tremendously if that's true. It matters tremendously how we live now. And so if Christmas is true, we can't live life as usual. Let's just put the Christmas trees back in the box and we'll do it all again next year. No, this is too huge of an event. And so let's jump into our text. In verse 1, Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ... If you have been raised, if you've been reached by Christ and you've been raised, and I just want to stop there, is he talking to everyone? No. 
the first two chapters of this letter, it basically is this is who Jesus is, of Colossians 1 and 2, is this is who Jesus is. This is his nature. This is the nature of Christ, as him as deity, as reconciler. Uh, Christ in all his preeminence and, and power. And then now he moves and says, and if you have been raised by Christ, if that has affected you, he's saying those of you who've been converted, those of you who've set your hope in Jesus, who build your lives upon him, who seek his spirit for wisdom, who enjoy vital union with him, it's the vine and the branches that you're connected if you've been raised with Christ. And so the big question right out of the gate is if. If you've been raised, if you're a Christian. And so I just want to ask you this morning a couple questions to see if this is true of you, if you are indeed a Christian. It's pretty straightforward, and if you answer no to any of them, then you probably are not a believer. So first, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you've openly rebelled against God, that you've, that you've shunned him and gone after your own ways? If you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. 1 John says, if there is no sin in you, if you say there's no sin in you, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And so I'm not trying to be controversial. This is just what we're, we're trying, to, trying to measure this here, trying to be verifiable, objective. Secondly, do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh sent to absorb the wrath of God for your sins? Do you believe he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead? And if you do not believe that, then you are not a Christian. Like, that, that's, that's orthodox Christianity. So we're not trying to bring, stir up conflict. This is basic Christianity. But then lastly, do you have a genuine affection for God? Not just can you answer all the right questions, but do you want to follow Christ? I'm not talking about if you had a, a spiritual high at church camp. Those are helpful. I mean, do you have a warmth and an inner desire to know Christ and be known by him? If those, thing, if those things are not true of you, I worry that you may have fallen into a Christianity as a subculture rather than actually following Jesus. But if those things are true of you, if you do affirm, I am a sinner and Christ is a savior and I want to follow him wherever he may lead me, then Paul has something to say to you. What all that was said before is something that was called justification. Christ justified you. He declared you right. You're okay with God forever. You are justified. But the, the reality that you've been declared righteous, declared right, the, the reality is a lot like Lazarus after, after coming back from the dead. He was made alive, but he still had his stinky grave clothes on. And you, you, you wonder, is he dead? Is he alive? Is he a zombie? Right? What, what is happening here? And this is the, kind of a picture of the Christian life, that we've been, we've been raised from the grave, but we still have these stinky grave clothes on. Now what? Well, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And so here Paul gives this command 
to change. Seek the things that are above, not things below. If Christmas is true, then it should transform you. It should move you to seek the things that are above, not things on earth. And what are those things? Well, he kind of spells them out a little bit in a couple of verses later if you have Bibles. In verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I mean, doesn't that list right there feel like it's a summary verse for America? Like just sexual immorality, rampant covetousness, you know, how much we, we just want whatever is in front of us, that which we don't have. I think marketing is, a bit, is big on showing you others so happy with their gadgets and their toys and their clothes and this fulfilled life, and we just covet all the time. I want that. I want that life. All of this, he says, is idolatry, which is asking something to fill your deepest desires and longings. But Paul says in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them. I mean, that was the old you. It can't mark the new you. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And so as much as we laugh at that skit, at the phrase, stop it. Paul is saying sanctification is not just stop it, but it's not less than that. He literally says, put those acts away. Like, are you marked by anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk? Is this what we set our minds on? Paul says, this brings the wrath of God. And so, yes, stop it. And he's going to tell you how to do that later. But also, set your minds on things above. And what's that? Verse 12. Put, then, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Or literally the text right there says, entrails of mercy. <laughs> like It says, like, compassionate guts. Like, Christians need to be famous for a gut-wrenching compassion. How beautiful is that? And then kindness. What's more beautiful than kindness? Humility, weakness. These are not popular traits in, in that day with all the bravado of your greatness and your dominance. But these godly virtues cut through that culture. And above all, he says, Put on love. Be loving. Not my rights over yours, yours over mine. Sacrificial, lay your life down type of love. And you may say, yes, yes, I want that. I want to change. But how do I? You know, this, this whole time I was preparing this sermon... I had been singing a, a, an old song called Bittersweet Symphony in my head the whole time. And there, there's a line from this song, if you know it, um, that, that I've been singing for 20 years wrongly. Um, and I was singing, I can change, I can change, I can change, I can change. That part, you know that? Actually, oddly enough, when I went to go look up the lyrics of the song, 
It says the exact opposite <laughs> of the song. He says, no change, I can't change, I can't change, I can't change, but I'm here in my mold, I am here in my mold. Uh, there's a million different people from one day to the next, I can't change. No, 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 no. How did I get it so wrong? <laughs> I just heard what I wanted to hear, apparently. I was like, no, <laughs> this is the exact opposite of the sermon. <laughs> But apart from Christ, he is right. Apart from Christ, we can't change. Sure, you can change some things here and there about yourself, but not deep down, rooted, heart-level change. For, for what changes a leper's spots? What makes people who hate one another actually begin to love one another? For Paul, the gospel brings this double blessing the forgiveness of sin, hallelujah, and the power for holiness. As the hymn Rock of Ages goes, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Wash away its stain and liberate me from the power of sin. And now there, there's this razor-thin line that I'm going to try to walk down here. Typically, when we think of change, we only think of it in the two extreme levels. Traditionally, the church has called these two extremes legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other. I know, you don't use these terms ever, except for maybe now. <laughs> legalism, as it sounds, is legal. You just want to keep the law. You want to keep all these commands antinomianism nomos is law and so the, the, this one is all about the law the other is one or, or is anti the law and so one is all about the law one is anti-law and so how do you change in 2021 well you just do better that's legalism <laughs> are you sinning stop it right that, that it's that simple just two simple words but for any of us, with a shred of honesty in us, we realize that doesn't work. Maybe you've been hurt by that teaching before. There's this danger in talking about change that many pastors have erred on, is if I tell you to change, if I tell you to work harder, to try harder, to be better, to stop it, then the onus is on you. And you get overwhelmed by your sin. And you burn out and you become despondent. Or worse, maybe you succeed seemingly. And now you're proud that in your own power, seemingly, you have defeated sin. And if you are tempted by that way of thinking, let me warn you that pride can be deadlier than any of those other sins. And so in light of the fact that, that some have become legalistic about keeping the law, it's easy to swing the pendulum to the other side. And even though Paul urges you to change, seek the things that are above, some will say, I will only talk about Christ's death and his crucifixion. Any calls to change will lead you to that legalism. And so just take your ticket. You've been punched. You get to go to heaven. Don't worry about anything else. Or maybe you had a different twist on that, on that teaching, and it sounded more like this. Just let go and let God. Anyone have that? 
Just give it to God and let go. Give it to him, anyone. I have a sin, what do I do? Nothing. Give it to God and it's over. It's in his hands. You don't have any responsibility now. But for those of us who are looking at reality and saying, but the sin is real. I don't want this in my life. I want to change. I hate my sin. I hate who it makes me become. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be different. And for those of you who do want change, here's the trick. Paul says, don't fight for your identity in Christ. Fight from it. Your identity in Christ is secure. You're good. And now you can go fight. Verse 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of my favorite verses. When did you die? Paul says that in the past tense, for you have died. What Paul is doing ever so beautifully is he's reminding us of our participation with Christ. And when Christ died, our body of death died with him. And this is what many theologians call the union with Christ. And it's all over the New Testament. Romans 6. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is why all your self-help has failed. You've been trying to fight and kill sin by your own power. What Paul is saying is that the participation is the path to freedom. We participate in his death. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 2, a chapter before this, is talking about how we've been buried with him, that we have been buried with him. I mean, I can keep going. Participation is everywhere in the Bible. Participating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior of the universe. This union with Christ is everything. We don't change in our own power. If we do, then we have something to boast about. That's stop it theology. And I just want to say stop it to those who preach it. But on the flip side, you can change. There is hope. Not in your power, but in Christ's power. Because we are united to him by faith. And so he can um, overcome any sin, can't he? He He has the power, absolutely. And you have died with him. And your life is hidden with Christ. You're like those little baby kangaroos that get carried around in their mama's pouch. It's not like the baby kangaroo is the one jumping around. It's the mom jumping around. You go with the mom because you are united to them. Or how many of you, it's like superglue. How many of you guys remember superglue the first time that you accidentally played with it and your fingers got stuck together and you freaked out and it was a little scary. You're like, oh my gosh, is this forever? <laughs> that you have two fingers, now you, two, now united to one. Because they're united. This union with Christ is this super glue that unites you to Christ so that you two are one. That you are united with him. That when he died and paid for your sin, you died too. And now when he rose, you rose too. And you fight sin because he fights sin. 
And so with you, with all of your baggage and all the reasons that you think you are not worthy and are not invited into his kingdom, he says no, because you're going with me, because we're stuck in it together. You were crucified when he was crucified. He came back from the grave. The battle is already won. Now go fight. Well, what does that look like? I know this is, this is a, sounds ethereal. What does that look like? Tim Chester says, all too often we think of holiness as giving up the pleasures of some worthy but drab sort of life. But holiness means recognizing that the pleasures of sin are empty and temporary, while God is inviting us to something magnificent, true, full, and rich that lasts forever. And so this is the secret of gospel change. It's being convinced that Jesus is the good life. That he is the fountain of joy over that sin. Don't you see how different this is than just stop it? Like if we just try to stop sinning, it's as if I were to tell you over Christmas, as you're looking at those sweets laid out on the table, you don't get to have any. Stop it. And just by looking at the sweets, you gain five pounds. You're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> it just happens. It, it, it somehow it inserted itself into my body by just looking at it. Like you eventually give in. No, you have to replace that desire with a deeper delight. This is what some, one, one theologian, Thomas Chalmers, calls the expulsive power of a new affection. And so I fight my envy with a new affection, how loved I am in Christ. I fight my sexual immorality with a deeper intimacy, how loved I am in Christ. God has something better in store for you than that fleeting temporary escape. Yes, stop it. See the emptiness and the destructive nature of sin. And taste the sweetness of that which you really what you really seek. And so if you struggle with pride, then you do need to see how unworthy you actually are in comparison. But you also need to see how worthy Jesus is, and that will shut us up. And that will give him all the praise. And that will give us reason to sing. Like, what, what if you're lacking recognition and you're, you, you just want more people to notice your hard work? What happens? Well, you go out and you seek that recognition in sinful ways. When in fact, in Jesus, you have all the recognition you need. He sees you. He sees you. He sees your work. He sees your tireless efforts. What if you struggle with covetousness? You're wanting something that you lack. And then you see in Christ how much he has given you? You see how much he loves you and gives you everything? Whatever it is that you're being called to change, see how much you have in Jesus. Whatever you're being called to change, see that Jesus' promises are far better and more beautiful than that which we settle for. Paul loads this passage with so much hope. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, when Christ who is your life, appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life. When he appears, we appear because we are super glued to him. And we will appear with him in glory, and we will appear perfect. Is that weird to think about? 
that you will one day be perfect. That your motivations, your actions, your body, it will all be perfect as it was intended to be. That process of changing you is what is called sanctification. It's this process of making you like that future self that you're going to be. And if that's what you're going to be, let's start that now. Christ, who is your life. I mean, this is the essence of Christianity. It's not that, that, that we have to emulate Christ or that I have, to, I have to listen to him. Yes, do those things. But here is the, the essence of Christianity, that I am in Christ. And from that springs everything else, that I am in him, and I find myself in him. He is my life. He is my identity. I mean, all week long, we find ourselves hiding ourselves in other people's comments to us. If I were to tell you, man, I am so pleased with you. I'm so thankful for you. I'm a better person because of you. I mean, you would feel thrilled if anyone said that to you. You would, you would hide yourself in those comments. But those words are fleeting. And as soon as we hear we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, that we are not enough, it just ravishes it all. And so all week long, whether through social media, through, through our, our spouses, through our children, through someone we are working with, whoever it is, through someone, we are craving that approval. I need you to approve me. I need your affection. I need your attention. I need your praise. But when I hide myself in Christ, just picture that. When I hide myself in Christ, and I let that be my shelter, I say, this is my life. My mind gets set on things above. It changes me. And so run to him this morning. For, run to him this morning for your old self is dead. Hide yourself in him this morning. Fight sin by hiding yourself in him. For Christ is your life. Do you want to change this new year? Hide yourself in him. Let's pray.